You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. Oh, you asked for it, and you get it. Welcome back into another episode of Play-By-Play Cast, everybody. It is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet. I'm the television and radio voice of the Ball State University Cardinals, and I broadcast basketball with CBS Sports Network. You can find the pod on social media at PXPCast. I'm at Joel Godet, or email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T, at BSU.edu. Why I had to think about how to spell my name? I don't know. This is the first time we have come to you on the play-by-play cast, not on a weekend. Usually we drop on Friday mornings, Occasionally, we've dropped on Saturday, but in this time of COVID-19 and uh, a lot of a lot of podcast episodes, uh, <laughs> I, we, we are bringing them to you more frequently, honestly, uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I was I was sitting here last week looking at some of the episodes I'd recorded and and I'm not really a patient person. And I was like, yeah, I, I kind of want to put this out before five weeks from now. So really that's the reason. There's there's not there's not a couple reasons. It's just I I don't I don't have the patience to <laughs> to let these all play out. That and listen. A lot of us are sitting around right now looking for something to do. And I refuse to watch Tiger King. You there is nothing you can do to make me watch that show. Nothing. You could delete everything else off of Netflix. I would watch Amazon Prime. So I figured with some of us having some time on our hands and wanting to use that productively, uh, what better way than to spend that time by diving into the play-by-play classroom. Uh, If you missed Friday's episode, Pat Hughes was our guest, the radio voice of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Some really awesome insight into uh, baseball on the radio. So make sure you scroll back through and check that out. He was preceded by Kevin Kugler, Mike Monaco, and the return of Adam Amin to the podcast from ESPN. Our guest today is somebody unlike we have had on this podcast before. We have had many play-by-play broadcasters. We have had, obviously, uh, we've had many analysts. We have had a couple sideline reporters. We have had one producer-director, Dave Tasca from ESPN, has been on this podcast. But we have never had somebody like Mike Moore. And if you can put a prefix in front of the word producer, Mike Moore has had virtually all of them throughout the course of his career. Executive producer, coordinating producer, senior producer, senior executive producer, senior coordinating executive producer. I don't know if that's a thing, but it sounds official. Uh, Mike Moore has had them. For 24 years until 2016, he worked at ESPN, an executive producer that headed and managed the department responsible for the production of 1,400 events and studio shows a year for ESPNU and syndicated networks. He was behind the launch of ESPNU back in 2005. Mike has since gone on 
to be a producer, executive producer, consultant, content developer with more productions since 2017. He's also an executive producer with uh, National Amateur Sports. He has done that since 2018. Heavily involved with Charlotte Plan C as well. Mike Moore is our guest on this week's episode of PXPCast, and it is an awesome one. We start with a little background for you. Um, Mike Moore's beginnings in this television industry, and we will work from there into everything you need to know from a producer's perspective, how a producer tells stories, how producers, play-by-play broadcasters, how the entire team works together to tell stories, and what producers want most out of their play-by-play broadcasters. We run the gamut this episode with Mike Moore. Kickback on PXPCast. I have been very fortunate in that I've spent my whole career, 35 years, working in sports television. Uh, It was always a dream for me as a high school student. uh, I would watch the NFL Today and football games and other sporting events, and I always wanted to do that. But at the time that I came out of college, cable TV was still in its infancy. And honestly, I didn't think that there would be an opportunity for me. I thought that I would just end up in a, in a local TV station newsroom someplace uh, doing behind-the-scenes work. <clears throat> but, you know, one thing, I went to the University of Tennessee. One thing led to another, uh, and I was doing tons of internships my senior year trying to, to get a foothold in the business. And so I was doing an internship at the UT Hospital, uh, filming surgery (laughs) and then uh i was also working for the ut athletic department at the time they had a cable channel in knoxville that was really really crude it was just basically putting events on vhs tapes and then replaying them on a loop and uh but they were using students to produce the content and it was terrible content (laughs) we didn't know what we didn't know we were doing but man, were we having a great time. And, you know, here, here was real world hands on, you know, on camera content we were doing it was swimming, wrestling, women's basketball, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was tremendous. So when it came time to graduate, uh, the hospital had offered me a job and the athletic department had offered me a job and the hospital job on paper was far better, but I figured, well, I've got no debt. I got no attachments. I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. And um, I spent seven years at UT and the role grew and, uh, and then was introduced to a syndicator in Charlotte uh, called Creative Sports because at that time I had really gotten a passion for producing uh, live events. I had a taste of it at Tennessee. We were doing pay-per-view football. Uh, tape delayed basketball games, things like that. And I really loved it. And this company was going to allow me to to take the next step. And they were packaging, you know, hundreds of programs a year for ESPN. Uh, about a year after I got here, ESPN bought the company. We were 12 people at the time. Um, and when I left ESPN, we had 250. Wow. So, wow. yeah. So it was an incredible rocket ride you know, in the early nineties when ESPN was really finding its footing and taking off. 
and was extraordinary. I mean, it, it was it was a ton of fun to be doing that. And I just hung on and went and got to produce events that I never thought I'd get to do and meet people I'd never thought I'd get to meet. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate uh, in my career of uh, being being in the right place at the right time, a lot of it, but also doing the right thing when I was there. So it, uh, it's been a good ride. Do you ever think what would have happened if you had taken the hospital job? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I probably would still be there and I'd probably be making, well, I don't know. I was pretty ambitious, but the, the hospital job, you know, had all the benefits and all that kind of stuff with it. Um, but you know, again, I really didn't care about any of that <laughs> yeah. stuff at the time. So yeah, I, I thought about it a little bit. I don't know how long I would have lasted uh, because I really did have a passion for sports television and would would have been willing, you know, even out of school just to try a bunch of stuff to try to get up a, a foothold. So I was fortunate that uh, I met a very visionary guy at the University of Tennessee who was my boss for several years, went on to work uh, as an executive at NASCAR. Uh, came up with NASCAR cafes. He also developed the first NASCAR playoff format. And so, you know, to, I didn't realize it at the time, but to have somebody like that teaching you and leading you was was also a huge help. What is it that made you gravitate toward, like what, what caused you to fall in love with, with the production side of sports and telling stories from behind the camera and being able to, um, be the kind of driver of what people are seeing at home. I think, you know, sports is the ultimate reality TV, uh, but you don't know what's going to happen. So you have to react. And so there was a combination of things is I did a lot of theater and radio in high school and college. And I loved, I also loved, it took me a while to realize this, but I also loved live performance pressure. I loved the adrenaline. I loved to have. I loved the pressure of having to get it right the first time, of making decisions you can't look back on. Mm. And a producer makes thousands of decisions in the course of a event. And as I got a taste of that, I really loved it. And then, it you know, I was like a lot of young people. I was caught up in a lot of the technical stuff. And then over time, as I met older more experienced producers and on-air talent, I learned about storytelling and how important that is. And so now um, I really I really enjoy the storytelling aspect and, and finding a way to relate to and engage the viewer. And, you know, that that's sort of my motivation these days. But anybody you talk to that does live sports television, they're a little bit of an adrenaline junkie too. Yeah, uh, because, uh, you know, and you know that, that, yep. that it's just I don't know what it is about us, but we just love it. And there's other people that want absolutely nothing to do with that. But um, that's that's part of the fun. The pressure is part of the fun. How did you get over early in your career? And I feel like a lot of us on the play by play side deal with this as well, because you're making so many decisions throughout the course of a game. Uh, inevitably, you're going to make a wrong one. Uh, yeah. How do you get to the point where it's easy for you to have gotten past that and just say, all right, next play, um, there's another button to press, there's another shot to call, there's another move to make, and let's keep moving. And, and we can still have a quality product, even though I'm upset about what I just did. 
you, you have to have a mindset like a defensive back in football. You just got beat, but you got to be locked on in the next place. So you don't get beat again. <laughs> and so that you just have a, sh- a short memory, but at the same time to improve, you've got to look, go back and look at those things and figure out how to correct them, you know, and be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to take feedback from other people and to learn. And because if you don't, you'll just stay in the same place that you are. So, you know, a common expression is that you learn for more from your failures and your successes. And that was always, I, I realized when I was 25 or 26, I thought I knew everything to that point. And then I realized that I didn't know crap <laughs> and that I didn't. And that even more so, I didn't know what I didn't know. And once I kind of had that mindset, it kind of just opened me up to taking in information from other people and learning from other people. And then you also realize that even the the best, they make mistakes, they've made mistakes and they've learned and, you know, they've learned from them and moved on. And there's a lot of wisdom out there. So, you know, talking, talking to people that have been in the business a while can help you out a lot on that. But I don't, I mean, I've had some really bad, bad shows. And uh, when I was younger, I would be in a funk for days after it was over. Hmm. Um, as you get a little bit older, you, you realize it's just par for the course and you just try to keep getting better and you, and you focus on the positive things that you're doing. I had somebody ask me this question the other day, uh, a, a younger broadcaster called me and said, you know, Hey, what did you not know when you were my age that you've learned since then? Um, so if I can turn that around, you mentioned not knowing what you don't know. Uh, what are the things that, that you didn't know that you didn't know and that you really had to learn early on in your career that have benefited you most to this day? I would say the importance of storytelling, uh, the importance of remembering who is watching, that it's not all about you. It's not all about your experience. Uh, there are people out there that are depending on you to deliver good information and, and entertain them. I mean, we're in sports, so it's entertainment. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was real caught up in all the technical stuff early on. And I see a lot of young people that are that way. They're attracted to the business mm. because of the technical and they want to know what kind of equipment you're using, what edit platform, those things are just tools. Uh, it took me a while to realize that they're just tools and they'll always change. Uh, you know, I'm old enough that when I got into the business, you know, the internet didn't exist for the first 10, 15 years that I was in the business and digital and just crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and now, you know, people say, well, what's the biggest thing that you saw change in the, in your career? It's easily, <laughs> it's the internet. The internet completely changed everything we did. And I mean, it took, it didn't happen overnight, but you know, if I look, look at now versus 20 years ago, it's vastly different what we can do. I mean, uh, this morning I was publishing videos. I was editing in my house and sending them out, which was unimaginable <laughs> 25 years, seriously, 25 years ago. Cause you had to have tape machines and tape stock and engineers and all kinds of stuff. So the technology and the internet has been been huge but getting back to what you were talking about um i think people and people shouldn't beat themselves up about this either that a lot of us are attracted by the technical stuff we get into business into the business for different reasons 
but it's important that you evolve into somebody where storytelling is very important and servicing the people that are watching or listening to you is very important. Yeah. Let's dive into the storytelling aspect uh, a little bit more. Uh, I know how I approach a game from a play-by-play standpoint when I sit down and look for what the story is of uh, of a game and how I want to tell it and how we want to tell it. Um, from a producer's chair, what's your approach? When you get a game and you know who the teams are and you know who the players are, how do you sit down? What do you look at? And, and how do you take it all in and organize it? Oh, the first thing I do is I, is I ask myself who the audience is. Um, these days, sports is so fractured that a lot of times with college football and college basketball, because every game is on, the people that are watching are fans of the team. Mm. 90%, I mean, they're, they've got a rooting interest in the game, and they follow the team closely. Uh, on the flip side, if you're doing a national broadcast and you've got two teams ranked in the top 10, you're going to attract a lot of people that don't know the teams. And they need a primer on what's going on with these teams and who's, who the stars are. So, again, it, it changes – based on who your audience is and what your distribution is. Uh, and the challenge for me is it's harder on the shows where you have two unranked teams and you know it's just the fans watching because what are you going to – you've got to come up with a way to tell them things that they haven't heard a million times already. Um, you know, fans have unprecedented access to information. And so talking about the leading score in the pregame – may not be the best route to go. Uh, I did the NBA for a couple of years with the Charlotte Hornets, and that's where I learned that lesson. Because we just had Hornets fans, and we couldn't talk about Larry Johnson every pregame or Del Curry. So we had to come up with different ways to advance the story of the season and kind of live in that moment. Uh, and that's that's my advice is, is ask yourself who's watching and what do they want to hear? And put yourself in their position. So, if, and it's difficult if you go. I mean, it's, I did basketball games this year in NC State in or Florida State in late December, and I show up, and it's the only game I'm going to do with them. So I'm gravitating right to the stars, you know, naturally in the big stories. Well, I had to remind myself that the people that are watching have heard these stories. And so what can we bring to them that's new? How can we, how can we bring the story to right now? And, you know, is there some, is there a freshman that's emerging? Is somebody hurt and the team is figuring out how to cope with it? Uh, you know, are they starting to show a trend in their statistics somehow that, that defines the personality of the team? Uh, those kinds of things. It's just, it's not a huge deep dive by any means, but you just have to consider who's watching. Yeah, I, I had a Dayton men's game this year on, on CBS, and my first thought was everybody's already, like everybody's going to, everybody's done the Obi Toppin story because he's such a, I don't know if enigma is the right word, but like he's this 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 fascination of people. So my first thought was, what, like, how is it possible to tell people something that they don't already know? And that was what we kind of went to the whiteboard with and figured out, all right, how are we going to take an angle on this story? Um, is there something that you've done, even like if it's recently, that you were proud of most from a storytelling standpoint like that, where you took a story and you, you tried to make it new to an audience? 
I think I did a, a, a game with Taco Fall at UCF a year ago or a couple of years ago. And it was the, it was with East Carolina. Both teams were either at 500 or below 500. It was, they were miserable. <laughs> and so we had to, we had to figure out what the big hook was. Well, there's a seven foot four guy. <laughs> that's a, that's the hook. And what we did is for the pre, for the scene set, I did one shot. We had him stand under the basket and he could stand flat footed and, and hang onto the rim. <laughs> and so we panned from his feet to him hanging on the rim and said, this, you're going to see this guy next. Uh, so think, you know, creative things like that. And a lot of times the announcers, it's important you listen to the announcers and talk to them because they have great ideas and they've often really studied and followed these teams, especially if you skate into a conference where these guys have been doing the games all year long and this is your first game. Uh, so that that's what I really kind of rely on too. What's your relationship like? What's the ideal producer play-by-play relationship like for you heading into a game? We're we're kind of in each other's heads a little bit, <laughs> okay. and, and you know, in a good way. And as a producer, I always felt that one of my primary jobs was to manage, or maybe you know, there's the management of the show, getting the commercials in, organizing everything, all that stuff. But when the show's on the air my primary job is to communicate with the announcers and to let them know what's coming up next and also ask them what they're seeing and kind of mold all that into the storytelling. And so, you know, we, it's just, it's a relationship that I enjoy a lot. And, but if you work with the same guys for a lot, there's a trust level that's built and on these one-offs, you can't get that. Right. So, but in the series that I've worked with play-by-play announcers for a season or two, it's really been fun because pretty soon, you know, you've got, you can, they trust you to the point where if you're feeding them information, like uh, they've said something and you've got a nugget that they can put on top of it and you tell them, um, you know, that they'll sometimes, that they'll, they'll uh, reiterate it to the audience or not, but I just, it's just, it's got to be casual. It's got, everybody's got to be having fun. Uh, you don't want the announcers to be distracted by any technical problems you may be having or anything else that's going on uh, because they are, they are who the audience hears and is identifying with. And the audience doesn't care if you're having technical problems. So, uh, that's that's just always kind of been my philosophy. I think, especially the play by with the an analyst is different, but you got to have a great relationship with them too to to understand the X's and O's. And so everybody brings a different skill set uh, to the table, but communication is the key to all of it. I need to tell you what during the course of a game that makes you happy as well as we're working. Like, what are the things that I can say as a play by play broadcaster that that make your life easier and that help make us operate on the same page once we're into a game flow? Just be nimble, um, you know, and be ready to, to adjust on the fly. I don't try to surprise people very much, but occasionally it, it just happens. You can't help it. And, but you always anticipate what's coming next or what you want to do next, or if you have business next and, and, 
you want to you want to work with announcers that appreciate flow, that understand that you've got things to do to take care of too, and it's just not all about them talking. So, uh, you know that that's that's a big part of the relationship. Most guys are great with that. They understand the business side of it and having to get promos in and and all those kinds of things. But you know, guys that. Guys that, you know, play-by-play announcers are wordsmiths. And so if you've got a rollout coming and you've done a good job telling them what the content is, you know, the clever guys on the fly will come up with something really good to say and advance the story a little bit or want you to come back on the other side of the commercial. Um, kind of on that note, let me ask you to put your your – EP hat or, or, or CP hat on um, and just generally when you are looking at play-by-play guys that are working for you um, what separates the the great from the good is a question we ask a lot on this podcast and not just mm-hmm. a guy where you say yeah like this was a good game he did a great job he's a pro but you know what makes the clever ones you know like, what, what separates the ones that that have the right thing to say on that rollout to break and that really differentiate people in your mind the ones who really prepare closely are able to add nuggets of information on the fly uh, in a situation, and they're able to pull back and and enhance the telecast, make it enjoyable for more enjoyable for the viewer by doing that. Uh, another part of it is knowing when to get out of the way. Uh, the better a game is, the less an announcer needs to do because the what's happening on the field or the courts taking care of itself. And so, you know, viewers just want pertinent information at that point. They don't need a lot of extra. And, but if you've got a blowout, it changes. And so the really great ones are able to adjust quickly and, and keep and try to do the best they can to keep the telecast interesting. Uh, The guys that I always liked were the ones that were able to smoothly add statistical or perspective probably the better words perspective to what they were doing so uh you know for instance it's a simple would be a simple example would be a guy player hits a three and he's been in a he's been in a slump for two games and has only hit one of 12 or something uh play-by-play announcer adding that and maybe he comes down and hits another one play-by-play announcer putting in perspective that this guy's been struggling but he's still the coach still wants him to shoot his way out of the slump uh just that perspective and that context is huge and to me that makes watching a game much more enjoyable guys like brad nessler are excellent at doing that um work with Brad for 25 years. Uh, he, he was just excellent at that. And he was also smooth. The other thing that I think uh, makes a great play-by-play announcer is that he's a guy that you want to have in the living room with you watching the game. And that he's casual and fun and funny, and he's got the right perspective on everything, uh, but doesn't take it just too crazy serious. Sure. Um, and that, that to me is important. But, you know, every executive producer has a different kind of a different view on that. And so, but you can watch different networks and see the personalities of their announcers 
and it's usually and be able to tell what the priorities are for the EP. It's uh, it's like being able to have the the one sentence story, like being able to condense. Right. Why yeah, is this guy kinda, struggling? Yeah. What's he doing to get better? And oh, by the way, here are two huge threes. It seems to have been working. Yeah, and this is more of a problem with analysts than it is play by play. But economy of words is really important, and you know, being able to express yourself in as few words as possible. Uh, that's a, that's another gift that I've seen some guys have. Um, on the flip side, what are the things that are your biggest stickler things? Things that people say do that that you just can't stand when you watch television. Oh, the all about me guys. <laughs> um, the people that talk too much, that don't know how to let a game breathe, or you know, just and I'm not talking about minutes. I'm you know, just a couple of seconds here or there makes a big difference. Uh, another great trait of play by play announcers are ones who are able to get engage and bring out the best in their analyst or establish or quickly establish a rhythm with their analyst. Um, Is there something that defines that? Like, have you seen a common factor between the, the pairings you've worked with that work the best together? It's a certain, yeah, it, it begins with being with humility and not feeling like you have to be the one talking all the time or, that you realize it's a team effort, not only at the table, but in the truck as well. And that everybody's working together for the same thing. So there's, there are times in a game where the play-by-play announcer needs to dominate. And there are times in the game where you want to hear from the analyst and it's a delicate balance and it's up to the producer and the play-by-play guy to kind of navigate that together. And and it's it's a very much a feel thing. It's not something that you necessarily talk about, but uh, but you know I had had have had to tell guys to you know hey let's fewer words, you know let's really focus on the event, you know don't with a one point game and twenty seconds to go, I don't want to hear the story about the kid's mom, <laughs> you know so the <laughs> it's just. You know, there's just things like that that I see a lot of the biggest thing that I see with inexperienced play-by-play people do that they do. They do all this research. They do a great job. They work and work and work, got all these notes, done all this research, and they get to the game and they feel like they need to, because they did it, they need to get it in somehow, which is a good game. Your research is only, you're only going to use 30 to 40% of your research. A bad game, you're going to use 80 to 90 percent of your research, and knowing where that gray area is in between is very important. It's one of those things where uh, save it for the next time you see the team. Like, <laughs> yeah, my my mom always says uh, when, when we go on vacation, leave something for the next time we come back. So if you think about it, and and that's one of the things I I, I told myself as a play-by-play broadcaster is like, hey, if I've got something I really wanted to get in but it just didn't work. I'll see this team again down the road and maybe it'll be something that fits in there. And that was kind of the mindset I think that helped me most um, fight through that struggle when I was really young and well, not that yeah. I'm not young now, but yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. And I, I, when I coach producers, a lot of times producers will jam stuff in sometimes and it's not the right moment or the right time and they'll miss action or they'll catch their announcers off guard and you can tell, I mean, I'm sure you've been on the other end of it where you just feel like a cinder block dropped on you. And so the, 
you know, is it's um, it's just in that timing is. And I've heard national announcers on a game-winning touchdown say stuff, and he scored, and I'm sure his grandma with cancer is really enjoying <laughs> this. And I'm like, that wasn't the right time to bring that up. And sometimes I think, you know, they get people get so tied up in these secondary stories that they forget that the real reason everybody's watching is just to see the game. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, probably people that would disagree with me on that, but. I think there's a time and a place for everything. Sure. Yeah, no, and, yeah, 100%. And just be patient because you'll let, you'll eventually get it in, uh, oftentimes within a minute. But, you know, just be patient. Wait for that right moment where it's going to fit. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a, a, a networking question, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because I, uh, I've always thought of myself as a, as a horrible one. Uh, because I, I don't like being in people's email inboxes and I always feel like if I'm there, I like, it, like I, I'm always emailing at the wrong time and nobody wants to hear from me. Um, and, yeah. and, and that might not be correct. That's just like my own self perception of, well, I'm not going to say anything cause it's, it, it's not the right time. Um, as somebody who's been on the receiving end of probably a lot of those emails, uh, how do you best establish that? Uh, that connection like what's the right way to go about reaching out to people uh, who have the decision making power but aren't spending their entire time making those decisions because there's a lot else going on in their lives yeah I think part of it is one don't be a pest and you know the people that are calling and emailing constantly at, at some point you hit a point of diminishing returns and you're like this guy I've never he's a pain in the butt I'm never gonna so the <laughs> But, the, you know, the ones – but at the same time, you want people to remind you that they're out there. And so you have to understand the way the sport, the sports business calendar works, or the TV business calendar works, that in April and May, the football guys are starting to fill out their rosters. So an email in that time period may be really well-timed because I know I'm guilty of it that uh you know you you have a weekend where you've got more games than you do people and you start going through your folders to see who else you can get and a guy who you know popped up at the right time may get a shot i mean it's it's different for everybody but you know and a lot of people have depth charts i know we did uh of people that we wanted to give a try to but you know it's just that that kind of timing and the other thing is, is I think we, you know, we give you the advice to, to go to media days and, uh, you know, just try to say hi to people, just to face the name, not a job and don't be a pest, just sh- shake your hand, you know, say, Hey, I sent you a couple emails. Would love to get some feedback sometime. Good to see you. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just those kinds of things. Um, it's tough. It's not an exact, unfortunately, it's very inexact science. It depends a ton on the person you're dealing with. Uh, some guys rarely look at any new talent. Other guys love it. And they're constantly looking to, to find somebody. I'm probably kind of in the middle there. Uh, these people are also super busy. And so, you know, if they don't get back to you, don't take it personally. And they're getting back to a lot of people. So, um, yeah, just, you know, do what feels right and be mindful of when they're crewing 
different sports. And, you know, for basketball, late spring, early summer is when you want to get these guys. Uh, you know, for baseball, around the beginning of the year. So that's when they're making, that's when they've gotten the schedules and they're making decisions about who's calling games. And the network guys are always trying to in, integrate new people to build depth. And also in case, you know, one of their regular guys takes another job or something. So, I mean, the opportunities are there. I've always tried to think about it like dating. Like, yeah. <laughs> w- would you send her another text now? No. Okay. Don't send the email. Um, yeah. And, right. And, and yeah, we went that. out last, we had our first date last night. I'm not going to call for two more days. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that's the good, <laughs> don't want to seem too desperate. But, so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, t- you're, that's a great analogy because it is a lot like that. Um, I have to ask, it's not a, it's not a play-by-play specific question, but I'm just out of curiosity with the, I said we could go in any number of directions talking to you. So yeah, when, when people come to you at your job and say, Hey, we're going to have you help launch an entire new network. Um, yeah. What was that experience like to be a part of the launch of ESPNU? Well, after I stopped throwing up, it, it is daunting. And, it's scary and you don't know where to start. Right. So the, um, you just take it a piece at a time. You okay. What do we have to do first? All right. We got to get a staff together to, to produce this content. (laughs) Okay. We need to get a graphic look. Well, you know, at ESPN, at ESPN, everybody uses the same graphic list. So that's easy. So you don't worry about that. So, you know, it's just putting the pieces in place and you just, you do it very methodically and divide up the work and you never, ever have enough time. So, you know, when the, when the, the launch date is going to come, whether you're ready or not, and you never feel like you're completely ready because there's always something else to do, but you go on the air and you, and you just start slugging away and, and trying to, trying to do the best you can and keep adjusting. It's it's it is dawning, but it's a ton of fun too. What was most rewarding about once it got on the air and like you? Did you ever go home and just turn it on and look at it and have that? Yeah, like, I think. Car yeah, yeah, I think a couple of things. One, the first night we were on the air, my boss leaned over my shoulder and said and whispered in my ear, "I don't know if anybody's watching right now," <laughs> and meaning that we were our distribution was so low. We weren't even sure if the people that had said we, they were going to carry us were carrying us and, uh, and kind of hovered around there for a while. And then ESPN did its first big deal with the Southeastern conference. And our uh, subscribers went from like 15 million to 75 million overnight. Um, that was satisfying. The other piece of it is when you see the folks that you, that you're working with, and you see the highlights of the games that they've done, you know, on Sports Center or, or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of satisfying things, and you know, or that you gave some people a producer, or a play-by-play person, a chance, and they've developed into somebody really good, and now they've get they they've advanced. You know, they've gone to ESPN or whatever, and you can't get them anymore. And while that sucks for me, <laughs> it's always really great for them. And those are 
you know, there's there's a list of people that people like me and Chris Farrow, you know, felt like we uncovered that have that have advanced uh, quickly, and and that's always really satisfying too. I was gonna say, of all the things you've done in your career, is that almost one of the things that that sticks with you most? Is is you know, we 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 talk about coaching trees in sports being able to have <coughs> impacted those types of lives. Yeah, especially as you get older. Um, you know, when you're young, you should, you're focused on your career and getting it, which you should be, uh, but as you get older and you start to influence and, and be around other people, those are immensely satisfying to see, uh, people that you helped uncover and, you know, to see how well they're doing. Allison Williams mm. is a reporter on ESPN. I found her on a tape that I was watching from an analyst prospect. Oh, wow. And I ended up being enthralled with her. And so, you know, she was just doing really local stuff. And so Chris and I kind of worked together and we found some opportunities for her. And, uh, you know, she ended up reporting on ESPNU and then, you know, now she's got a tremendous career. So, I mean, she's done a lot of great work and it's, it's all on her for taking advantage of the opportunity, but, you know, I always, she's always, she's always been really, really nice to me about, you know, thanking me for giving her the a first opportunity and all of that. So it's same with Joe Davis. I was just going to um, say, I, I texted him last night and I said, I was, uh, I was talking to you today and, and, uh, if there was anything I should ask you and he said, uh, who your favorite Montgomery biscuits announcer was <laughs> Joe Davis. So you know, Joe, Joe got his break doing an ESPN three softball regional. And then it seems like six months later, he was off to Fox and the Dodgers. So <laughs> I didn't, you know, he, he accelerated really, really fast. He was a very unusual, uh, very unusual case, but you know, another, there's another guy was satisfying to see how he's done. Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I, uh, as I'm running through my list of things I wanted to cover with you, um, it's going to seem jumping around ish because it, it's something I missed as we were talking earlier, but I wanted to get it in with you if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah. And it's just going back to um, specifics of, of what play by play people do um, when we're on the air and, and what you're looking for out of what stands out as great. And it comes down to physically making a call. And I know we talked about like using information at the right time, but I'm also curious about what stands out to you in terms of description. Like if we're on television and I say, you know, a guy hits a big three um, and I, and I just, and I, I don't describe the play. I make a comment like, you know, Oh, he's on fire or something general. Um, Is, is that okay? Or are you somebody that wants to hear, like Johnson from the wing, like, and then he hits the shot, big exclamation afterward. Like how much detail is necessary on television? And do you want to hear on television because of the fact that the picture is there? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough for play. I play guys because they've got a balance between information and entertainment. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, knowing how to call something in the moment that's appropriate is is important obviously but you know if a guy is is hit his a3 and you're like man he is on fire what i would want to hear after that is a follow-up of why he's on fire 
So that's the context you know, again, we were talking about. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So the the he's on fire is the entertainment part. Why he's on fire is the information part. And so that you know knowing that bounce, and then also if you're late in the game, like we talked about earlier, I think it's okay to assume that that people are engaged and you may not need to lend as much information. You may, if it's a great game, you're just covering the moment um, and offering information where it's pertinent. So if a guy's at the free throw line and, you know, or he, or he, if a guy gets fouled at the free throw line, the graphics will take care of it. But the, if somebody gets fouled, the first thing I want to know is can he shoot free throws? Yeah. And so, you know, you commenting or opining on, oh, that was a good foul. The guy only shoots 55% from the line, or that was the last guy they wanted to foul because he shoots 85%. So, you know, those kinds of things are helpful. Once again, it's context, but uh, that that's kind of, you know, that's an example of the kind of information I look for. Sure. It's like the reason that one's always been in my craw is I, uh, I did the, the D2 women's, finals last year for basketball and it went to double overtime and in the first overtime period a girl hit a three in the corner to tie it with like tenths of a second left um Mm -hmm. and i and the way i called it there was an initial shot there was a rebound they kicked it to her she shot and i just said rebound chitsy yes um and then the crowd went nuts but Mm -hmm. it always it always felt a little naked to me um that like it needed to have like a chitsy in the corner for the tie and then lay out. But then I contrast that to when we had Adam Amin on, you know, last week on the on the podcast, and we talked about the Ogumbawale corner threes in the final four. Mm-hmm. And, and all he said was Ogumbawale, good. And it was brilliant. Um, right. So, like, tr- trying to find the right balance of what works where has always been something that's, that's toyed in, in my mind. Yeah, I think that's an experience thing, Joel. I mean, the more you do it, the more you listen, the more you'll know what to do. Mm. Um, one of my first bosses had been a long time executive, a uh, long time executive at ABC Sports in the U- Rune Arledge days, mm. and he used to tell us all the time, "Less is more," and you know, just less is more. Yeah. So that's why, and the people that subscribe to that. You can tell a producer that's, that kind of subscribes to that where they're doing a pregame show and they, you know, they've got, you know, huge crew, 15 cameras, whatever. And what they do is they just show a warm up shot of the guy, you know, because that's all they need to do to show this, to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what do you need to do that to effectively tell the story? And, that that's always where and usually you find out you don't need to do as much as you think you do all right that's the 173rd episode of pxp cast officially in the books many thanks to mike moore seriously many thanks to mike moore for coming on this podcast really awesome episode to get that kind of perspective it's not every day you get the look at a broadcast from a producer's role a producer the caliber of mike moore um, and also the the insight of a guy who has been in that hiring chair, who has been the guy who gets all of the emails from people like me and, and people like you uh, trying to figure out how we, we, can, we can work for him and them. Uh, so interesting to kind of hear the, the insight of um, 
what it's like on his side when those emails come across his desk. Phenomenal information. On our first midweek episode of PXP Cast, we're back at it on Friday. Krista Blunk is our guest. Until then, we say so long. My name is Joel Good. The music is Marshmallow. We are out. See you. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.